If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson on 900 CHML. Hey, it's Hamilton Today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Major Tom McKay is on the board. Wild Willerskin booking the guests. In the newsroom, Dave Woodard and Jennifer McQueen. The majority of Canadians think the Prime Minister spends too much money on the wrong things. Come on, how much can a pair of socks cost? Here's Scott Thompson. It is Hamilton today. I'm Scott Thompson, 900 CHML. Boy, uh, lots going on today. And um, the big story is the Bernardo transfer. Uh, the report came out trying to justify all of this. And what keeps coming out and is just wacko is um, that uh, this was supposed to be kept low profile, I guess, for the safety of the staff um, and, and the people that had to actually transfer uh, Paul Bernardo to the medium security prison. Uh, but Ann Kelly, the head of correction services commissioner, uh, explaining and trying to justify and saying that their decision was sound in moving Paul Bernardo to a medium security prison uh, to get him to better integrate with other inmates, which makes him easier to manage, whether you agree with that or not. Uh, and, and again, coming back to the fact that uh, both the Prime Minister and uh, Marco Mendicini, the Safety Minister's offices, were not uh, notified months in advance about all of this, and then again a couple of days before it all happened, uh, despite the ministers, including the Prime Minister, not aware of it till it was actually going on or the day after. So uh, the commissioner uh, did say that from now on she'll um, talk to them personally whenever there's another Paul Bernardo moved to a situation like this, um, which makes you ask the question, what the hell is the staff doing? Shh, don't tell the boss. Whatever you do, don't tell the boss. And again, just utter, utter incompetence from the prime minister and the staff. And another example of the left hand just not knowing what the right hand is doing. And as a result, we have ministers that are completely out of touch, whether it's the safety minister or uh, the prime minister uh, himself, who, again, uh, said that he didn't find out about this uh, till I believe, the day before, day of, day after. Anyway, certainly missed the memo three months ahead of time that the rest of the staff all got. Uh, anyway, uh, there was a news conference today with the Commissioner uh, of Correctional Services, Ann Kelly, talking about and justifying uh, what is going on. And, and uh, well, I'll, I'll let this clip speak for itself. The review committee concluded that the decisions to reclassify this inmate to medium security and transfer him to La Macaza Institution were sound and followed all applicable laws and policies. That's why it had to be kept such low profile. It's within the law, but everybody's going to be just so angry, it's going to hit the fan. Uh, this is what she had to say about the victims. What they have gone through is unimaginable. Public safety and their safety continues to be top of mind for us in any decisions we make. Uh, and if something goes wrong, they will send him back. It is important to stress that at any point, an inmate can be returned to a higher security level if deemed necessary to ensure the safety of staff, our institutions, and the public. And in regard to how everybody's feeling, I guess. I have been with CSC for close to 40 years, and I know 
that our feelings towards offenders cannot guide our decisions. Our system only works if we continue to carry out our duties according to the rule of law. All right, so there you have it. That is Ann Kelly, Commissioner of Correction Services, trying to justify uh, the transfer of Paul Bernardo from a maximum to a medium security prison as a sound decision. Uh, I watched the news conference. Uh, what I seem to get out of it, over and above, the, it is their mandate to try to rehabilitate. And she did stress that Bernardo would not be getting out. But again, their mandate is to try to rehabilitate it in uh, him and try or anybody and then try to be able to manage them within the prison system as opposed to uh, in a cell by themselves for 23 hours a day or so. Uh, I'm not sure that's going to be enough to appease uh, the public. Uh, I don't know how you compare uh, Paul Bernardo to a typical uh, prisoner who would be, uh, would be an advantage to try to rehabilitate, which I'm sure are the vast majority of people that are being incarcerated. Everybody deserves a second chance. But then there's some that don't. And can you rehabilitate a psychopath? But again, this is about management. Well, why the secrecy? And again, a lot of the time spent uh, today, especially during the question and answer period, was how the heck does the safety minister not know about this? How the heck does the prime minister not know about this? And she reiterated that now she will directly, I don't know, email. I mean, is there, is there, a, is there a drawbridge before you even get to these people? Because uh, clearly there was. And how competent are the ministers in guiding their staff or managing their staff when um, bombs like this drop on their desk and they think, well, you know, the best thing to do here is don't tell the boss. Don't tell the prime minister. Don't tell the minister. Whether this uh, ceases and election interference, whether it's Paul Bernardo being transferred, whether, my goodness, it, it's like the left hand just does not seem to know what the right hand is doing or out of touch with, with what Canadians are feeling. And, um, y- you know, you just have to shake your head and, and wonder when the cabinet shuffle is coming and, and, and how do you regroup from all of this? It's just, it's bizarre to see what has happened and what has transpired. And I don't think from what we heard today, there are going to be too many people happy about what we've just heard. Beauty day in the hammer right now, uh, nice and warm, 28 degrees and some cloud rolling in and a severe thunderstorm watch. Uh, but for the friends down in southwestern Ontario, it could be a little bit more than that. As Environment Canada has said, there could be heavy rain, hail, and the risk of tornadoes through the southwestern area of the province today. Let's bring in Anthony Farnell, Chief Meteorologist for Global News, and with us now. Anthony, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well. Yes, uh, it is just starting to uh, pick up down in southwestern Ontario. So we are uh, watching it closely here in the Weather Centre. We know, Anthony, that this part of the province is uh, is prime for this sort of activity, but I've heard you speak of late that sometimes this seems to be, over, over time, it seems to be expanding a little bit. Is this primarily for the southwestern Ontario area? Could we see remnants of this in the Golden Horseshoe? Yeah, definitely. More than remnants. I think uh, just after dinner time, we're going to have a rather intense line of storms that's going to 
going to be moving through Hamilton uh, back towards Brantford. Even there is still a slight tornado risk for that area. Woodstock, the more you get down towards London, uh, this is where some of these storms may start rotating. But uh, we mentioned tornadoes and all the focus and attention goes there. But uh, I think hail is a big risk along with uh, straight line winds. And this uh, intense line of storms in Michigan really means business already. And it's moving now uh, into Sarnia into Windsor as we speak. So it's a quick mover, but uh, those sunny skies you see outside your window, uh, they're not going to last too much longer. I think within the next couple of hours, things change in a big way. It's fun. It's funny you bring that up, Anthony, because, yeah, it, it looks pretty nice outside, a typical summer day, but you said this is going to be moving quite fast and things will change quite quickly. Yeah, and even uh, down towards uh, parts of the Niagara region, Port uh, Colborne, we're seeing a rather intense storm that's sitting over them, bringing heavy rain, uh, gusty wind. So there is that chance of a few of these discrete cells, these supercells, out ahead of the main line. And you have to watch those carefully because there's just a lot of energy in this atmosphere. And as we go up from the surface where we all live to the upper atmosphere, uh, we start to see these winds veer and they rotate. And that uh, is a sign that maybe these storms will, will mean more than just your average afternoon storm. How difficult is it, Anthony, for you to monitor this stuff and try to watch it if it is so volatile? You don't know which way it's going to shoot in any direction or what's going to happen. Is this one? Is this that type of storm? Yeah, it definitely is. Things change uh, basically by the minute. Uh, there are a lot of amateur and a couple of professional storm chasers that are basically our eyes on the ground. And if you just monitor on Twitter, on different social media channels, uh, you get a good idea of what's happening because radar doesn't always paint the picture. And in Canada, sometimes our radar images only get updated every eight or nine minutes and a lot can happen in between wow. those scans. So we're, we're watching all of that. Um, but computer models, help us as well figure that okay this is where we should be looking for these storms to develop and right now it's southwestern ontario but uh with all the sun that we've had today uh, i i do think the risk is greater than normal even into hamilton and, and the greater toronto area as well we'll get some details in a sec from you anthony but do we need getting back to what you were just saying do we need environment canada or the powers that be to you know, as things change and, and we're, we're set with different circumstances and, and such, do we need better equipment, better technology to keep up with this? Well, these are mostly brand new radars. So uh, the technology is there. There is still some complaints on my end and others that there's a lot of ground cl uh, clutter. There's a lot of interference with uh, the signal that they use. And that's uh, across Canada. So there is that, but also us getting access to all the information that's available. And then this is long overdue, but having a polygon type system for warning with these storms. Right now, we do it on a, a county or a, a region basis, and that leads to confusion because oftentimes storms don't impact all of an entire large area it, it's just focused on one section of a region so we really need to switch our warning system up and there are plans in the works but unfortunately not for this year yeah storms don't know boundaries okay so uh, give us what we can expect uh, first in london area southwestern ontario and then what we can expect here uh, closer to the golden horseshoe 
Okay, so London, we're just now 3.25 p.m. I think around 5 o'clock is the time that we're looking for. Uh, this is a fast-moving line of storms. Hail, uh, especially London and points southwest. The risk of an isolated tornado spinning up and uh, definitely some straight-line winds, 110 kilometers per hour, which can cause uh, some damage. So you want to take these seriously, and then from there, the line moves towards Hamilton. I'm thinking around the dinner hour, maybe a little bit after. Uh, they'll be weakening, but still, this is not uh, time to let your guard down as this entire system moves through. And it's actually a, a cold front, so it'll be much cooler and less humid coming up tomorrow. Uh, a severe storm expected to hit southwestern uh, Ontario. We're going to get a piece of that. Anthony Farnell with his chief meteorologist uh, with Global News. Keep it here and at Global as well, and we'll keep you updated on what goes on. Anthony, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Thanks a lot, Scott. Nearly 60% of Canadians' uh, parents in Canada are fearful for the financial future of their kids. Uh, obviously, we're hearing more and more the dream of home ownership for young people is slowly slipping through uh, their fingers, uh, largely because there just hasn't been enough housing built. There's a shortage. Everybody talks about, you know, the cost of this, the cost of that, the cost of whatever, building materials, supply chain. You know, if you don't have enough houses before a pandemic, you're not going to have enough houses after a pandemic. And if the majority of the middle class are in a housing crisis, guess what? Those trying to join the middle class are going to be in even worse shape. And that's where we are. 60% of parents worried about their kids. Let's bring in Jay Llewellyn, a senior financial consultant with Fox Group IG Private Wealth Management. And of course, you can hear Saturday mornings planning your financial future. Jay, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm great. Thanks, Scott. So, you know, people come to you to get their uh, their plan figured out and what have you. Are they coming back and saying, what about the kids? How do we incorporate this into the plan? Yeah, that's a that's an age old question. There's a lots of lots of different strategies or ways to skin a cat or, or however you want to put it. But you know, looking at the numbers quickly, I, I was reading the article that you're you're referring to, and they were talking about the price of the average price of houses, how it's decreased over the last year. Um, last year in Hamilton, the the at this time the average house price was about nine hundred and thirty five thousand dollars, and now it's at eight hundred thirty. So you said, "Geez, it's getting cheaper to to buy houses. It must be more affordable for these these kids to to hmm. buy a house. Less down payment um, and less cost to buy." Well, the the reverse is actually true. Yeah, there's a smaller down payment there. That's a it's a less less costly investment in the beginning, but because interest rates have gone up, it's it's unaffordable or unattainable for a lot of these young families to. To buy a house, so the difference in mortgage payments on those two, you know, we we've gone down a hundred thousand dollars in price, but we've gone up a thousand dollars a month in costs, um, just on just based on that mortgage alone. So I look at that and say, you know what, cash flow is king, and, and a lot of people are living paycheck to paycheck to to throw another thousand dollars a month into your costs from last year to this year, uh, just isn't affordable for a lot of Canadians. So many are thinking that the uh, the baby boomer generation or those just uh, underneath it are flush with cash. And uh, why can't we go to the bank of mom and dad and do this? What should you be aware of if you're going to uh, perhaps help your kids out? Because this also will affect the retirement of the parents. Yeah, for sure. And, you know, you got to look at where you're going to pull that money from. So, you know, there's different types of investments, RSPs, non-registered tax-free savings accounts. If you're pulling from your RSPs to lend money to your kids, you have to be mindful of the fact that 
that's taxable to you, not to your children. Even though you're giving it to your children as a gift, um, that's still taxable to you in your hands and it gets added to your income in the year. So, you know, if you're making $50,000 a year in, in pensions and, and then you pull out $100,000 to give to your kids, that raises your income up to $150,000 for the year um, and taxes on that extra $100,000 are close to $40,000. So you definitely want to be mindful where you pull the money from if you are going to decide to help your kids. The other thing that you want to look for or, or be aware of is if you've got other kids. So if you're helping out one and not helping out the mm. other, <laughs> you, you want to put something in place so that you've got the other one taken care of. If something happens to you and you pass away and you've given money to one kid and now now you look at the will and it's divided 50-50 but it's 50-50 after the fact that you've lent the money um the other the other child could be a little upset so there's trust agreements that you can write up that often we'll see with with parents writing trust agreements loan agreements um the old IOU doesn't doesn't cut it anymore <laughs> mm. so what about the financial literacy of young people we hear uh, obviously that you know this is a tough game and and things are getting tougher you have to be relatively savvy now we are hearing that uh, schools are more and more offering this sort of uh, uh, uh i guess teaching for kids on financial literacy and such how important is it for young people to be aware of what all their options are and educate themselves on this. Yeah, I can't stress it enough. I've done a lot of guest lectures at schools, high schools, colleges, and things like that over the years. And, you know, they'll bring me in for an hour or something like that once a year. And that's just not enough. Um, the kids, it needs to be part of the curriculum. Right now we have, you know, you have your math, English, science, history, geography, all of those compulsories, but financial planning or financial literacy really isn't in there. They have something called careers or, or or something like that, where they learn how to do resumes and how to apply for a job, but it really doesn't focus on financial planning, um, how to get a credit card, how to get a loan, how, to, how does a mortgage work? All of these fundamentals and kind of the, the pillars of, of how we function day to day. And if you don't have that, that foundation when you're young, it's really hard to teach someone when they're in their 30s or, or early 20s how to change things if they've been set in their ways, uh, you know, since they've been kids. But what do you say to a parent that says, I'm fearful of my kid's financial future? What would you say to them? Yeah, start educating them, have them come in and sit with a financial planner, meet, talk, read books, do as much as you can. You have to do it on your own because the schools aren't doing it. So um, having conversations with your children, you know, we, we sit down with people all the day and there's a lot of 50 year olds that aren't very financial literate yeah. as well. So, um, you know, it's, it, I don't want to say the apple doesn't fall, fall for far from the tree, but it, it's just not something in our innate nature to, to be trained to look at finances. It's something that's, that, that's always put on the back burner. The, the grass needs cutting, this needs done. Yeah. There's always something else to do as opposed to talking about finances, which is really boring. You know, we've talked about it on the show before about having financial dates. Um, that's maybe what I would like to do, but not, not everyone, that's for sure. So uh, are you surprised that parents are fearful for their kids' future? Have you ever heard of that or experienced that over history? Yeah, you know? yeah. Yep. We have lots of parents come in and, and say, would you mind sitting down with my my 16-year-old or my 18-year-old? And Don and I will, you know, Don Fox and I are on the show. Um, we'll sit down with these these young people and, and try and educate them. But again, that that half hour or hour that we spend with them is nothing compared to what they that you, you constantly 
You got to be reinforcing it with your children, making sure they're aware of how things work, setting up bank accounts at an early age, getting them involved in the, in the family finances and, and knowing what's going on, helping them, helping them uh, make decisions in terms of finances whether it's paying for tuition and and having some skin in the game there's just so many different things in terms of finances you can't you can't really learn it in 30 minutes or an hour you've you've got to be on top of it every week Jay Llewellyn with us, Senior Financial Consultant, Fox Group, IG Private Wealth Management. Make sure you're listening every Saturday morning to Planning Your Financial Future. Jay, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. Hey, Scott, thanks so much. Have a great week. So I'm watching the news last night, and as I always do, and there's a, uh, a feature on talking about sharks in Canadian waters, waters getting warmer, this sort of thing. And I'm watching it, and, and it's quite interesting. And then all of a sudden, uh, uh, a senior data scientist with OSEARCH shows up on the screen, and I'm watching this person, and immediately I'm thinking, that's Coach John. That's John Tominski. Uh, former coach of, of Kurt's old hockey team. And I remember sitting around at practices and whatever and talking about, you know, what everybody does and so on and so forth. And John telling his, uh, telling us his tales about chasing sharks and tagging and studying and research and so on. And, and it was fascinating. And then all of a sudden, here we are years later, I hit the TV and there's John on my big screen. So joining us now, John Tominski, senior data scientist with OSEARCH. I hope I'm pronouncing that right. John, thanks for the time. I hope you're doing well. My pleasure. It's good to be here, Scott. It's good to hear from you. Hope Kurt's doing yeah. well, still playing hockey. Everybody's doing well. And how's your boy doing? How is the whole fam? All's good. All's good. Yeah. Brendan's still playing hockey and having a lot of fun uh, and into golf and a lot of other things. So he's, yeah. he's enjoying the summer. That's for sure. Are they into sharks like you are? Uh, not quite like I am, but I can tell you, we had a trip to uh, Florida last summer and I got I rented a boat and I got them on a rod and reel and they caught each my daughter and my son each caught their very first sharks. Uh, and I've got great photos. It was a thrill for me. I hope it was a thrill for them, too. Wow, that's incredible. Uh, doing the deep sea fishing with you, John, is going to be uh, going to be at a different level, that's for sure. Okay, so uh, the, the issue is here, warming waters and, and sharks going farther north following that water. Uh, are there, is there an increase in sharks in Canadian waters? How common is this? Well, it's it's hard to say 100% sure of, of that. Uh, Sharks have been coming up to Canadian waters, white sharks, that is, uh, probably for millennia. But um, we think that there is increasing numbers. And that's not all about climate change necessarily. White sharks are kind of a success story. Their numbers were really decimated in the beginning of the 1960s. And then with the Marine uh, Mammal Protection Act in 72, and then a federal fisheries plan that came into effect in 1993, we saw rebuilding of white shark stocks beginning in the early 2000s. And we think that rebuilding is still going on today. So it's it's kind of a success story. Um, does climate change, global warming maybe have an effect on more going north? I think that's possible, but our data, it's too soon for us to really say that with certainty, but I think it's, it's not a bad uh, assumption. So this is a good news story in the sense that obviously conservation awareness education is working. You're seeing uh, the replenishment of a species. Absolutely. This is a good this is a good story. Uh, white sharks, as you know, are an apex predator, a top predator. We need them. We need them to keep balance in our in our oceans and our ecosystems. And that's really what the overriding or overarching mission of OSEARCH is. And we want to try to restore the balance uh, to our oceans. And, and we've chosen the white shark as being the uh, the model for that. 
Um, we do a lot of collaborative science. We believe in in teamwork and sharing our science and 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 you know, like not in the traditional way where science used to have different silos and they're different competing each other. We're all about inclusiveness. And so we want mm. to spread that model. We need solutions uh, quickly. And so the only way we'll get there is collab- collaboration and cooperation. White sharks, uh, different from other sharks, describe this. What, what is this type of shark like? Well, they are the largest carnivorous uh, fish in the oceans, you could say. Um, so they are, as I say, an apex predator. They come up into uh, Atlantic Canada and and around Cape Cod in the summertime and into the early fall. And they do that because food, bottom line, they're there to feed. Uh, these are areas where you've got seal colonies, harp seals, and particularly gray seals. And, and this is what's, what's really driving it. And that's part of the story of success with the, uh, as I said, the Marine Mammal Protection mm. Act. When the seals were doing poorly, the white sharks were doing poorly. So that's that's part of it. They've the seals have really come back, and therefore there's there's lots of food out there for these white sharks, and we need them. We need all the pieces of the of the puzzle to keep the ecosystem healthy. Anything to be fearful of here? You know, um, not not. I don't know. I don't think so. I mean, if we look at this uh, Simon uh, and, or Jekyll, at least that was that shark was about 28 kilometers off of uh, the Gaspé Peninsula. Um, usually they are not going to where popular beaches. They're going to where the seals are, by and large. Right. Um, so, but at the same time, um, I, I think of it analogous to uh, driving a car. You know, if you get into a car, you take precautions. You, you you keep, you're aware of your environment to keep you a little bit safer. There is a risk involved. When you go to the beach and you swim or you dive, there is a little bit of a risk, but you use uh, common sense and, you, and you're aware of your environment. You're not going to, for example, you're not going to want to go swimming where you see a, a gray seal colony. I mean, that's uh, right. surfing or, you know, it just, you know, that's, that's increasing the chances of having a, what's already going to be a low, you know, a low probability uh, incident, but you're increasing your odds by, you know, proximity to a seal. You don't necessarily want to go swimming through the bait. You don't want to swim through the bait. And that, you know, the same thing applies to people that go swim in Florida, other places like this, where there's lots of sharks yeah. around. You see a bait ball or something, you know, maybe it's time to get out of the water. Let's let, you know, that there's a good chance there's a predator chasing that bait ball. So, you know, it's again, it's just being aware of, of the environment, keeping your eyes open. Fascinating stuff. John Tominski with us, senior data scientist with OSEARCH, uh, talking about increasing sharks in Canadian waters. It's a good thing. It's a food chain uh, increase. John, Thanks so much for the time and sharing the information with us. Best of luck. My pleasure, Scott. All the best to you and your family. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with an answer, he'll delve into the issue until he is. You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Big story of the day today. Uh, the Bernardo transfer, the report came out today on how that all uh, went down. Uh, we're hearing that it was uh, the idea was to keep it a low profile for the safety of everybody. Uh, once again, the prime minister and uh, the safety minister, Marco Mendoncini, did not know, despite uh, corrections services saying that, yes, their departments were notified. They are changing that now, so you just don't send the office or the note to the office of the prime minister or the safety minister. You actually knock on the door and you say him face-to-face or you make a phone call to him or personally email him. I I don't know. (laughs) I don't know how anybody can have this going on in the office and don't tell the boss. Uh, Let's bring in Sean Sparling, Chief Executive Officer, Investigative Solutions Network, and is with us now. Sean, thank you for the time. Hope you're well. Good, and yourself? 
So far, so good, Sean. Thanks for the time. Uh, the Corrections Services Commissioner said this was a sound decision. How do we interpret that? Well, sound decision, I guess, to their standards. Uh, certainly, they uh, they bumbled the uh, the notification of the families and the public and all that kind of stuff. So, the decision to move them maybe made sense within their own uh, limits, but uh, they certainly didn't serve the the victims and the families very well. And your thoughts that. Uh, they've now put a procedure in place that uh, it's up to correction services to directly contact the minister. Uh, seemingly, the staff isn't uh, competent enough to do that. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I don't think we really know what happened there. This could be just a lot of plausible deniability type going on. Um, and yeah. I think it's uh, more just a little bit more political theater saying they have to contact him directly, his office, and you, and that should really be enough. Eh? Uh, the Correction Services Commissioner said this was all done to better manage the situation. Uh, apparently, Bernardo now being allowed into more of the general population in, in exchange with others and such. Um, do you see that type of rehabilitation um, working or, or justified when you've got someone who's deemed a dangerous offender or a psychopath? Uh, just on the surface, no, uh, but I don't have access to the information they had either. Um, quite frankly, Bernardo is never going to see the light of day. Uh, he's a dangerous offender, and uh, I don't think that'll ever change. Um, and the fact that I just go back to this does not serve the families well at all, the way this they were kept in the dark about this and only notified the day of. And same as the public, there's really no public interest in withholding this information. It's going to get out anyways. Uh, how would life be different for Bernardo now? I think he's got a few more uh, liberties within the uh, medium security facility that he's in. Uh, I, I read I read an article. I don't think it's terribly uh, different than uh, where he was, but uh, certainly he's going to have more interaction with other inmates. And I think he's going to have access to some other programming. I don't think the level of security within the facility changes a whole lot for him. Um, but again, I just go back to uh, I don't see what the point was in moving him, but also certainly there's a, a lot to be said uh, about contacting uh, the families and the, and the public and letting them know what's going on. I remember way back when, when he was initially put in prison, that, uh, you know, he was by himself for his own safety. How has that changed? Well, it probably hasn't. Um, the, uh, obviously, they made some sort of determination, or maybe it has, but the, uh, his, his safety is still in jeopardy within, the, within that institution, for sure. Um, the, uh, but how they manage that, they've obviously made a determination internally that they can. But, uh, again, this certainly doesn't give uh, people comfort that he's been moved to a, a, a lower secure facility. Can you see this situation being reversed? I mean, the commissioner was quick to point out if something goes wrong, they'll ship him back. Uh, can you see, uh, without that happening, him returning to maximum? No, uh, like this was a bureaucratic decision within uh, Correctional Services Canada. Quite frankly, that's where it belongs. We don't want our politicians making these kind of decisions. Mm. So it, it properly belongs within Correctional Services Canada. And I really don't see how this will change except for that something occurs and they have to move them for security reasons. Uh, obviously, as you mentioned earlier, uh, at the forefront of all of this, the exchange going on between uh, correction services and the family members, uh, victims and such, who who have to hear this uh, information as you see all of this trickle down and and what we're hearing was this handled right or he should he still be in a maximum prison well my my personal opinion is that he should stay in the maximum security facility forever um, professionally I, I know that the correctional services will have considered this and applied their standards 
but as far as the, the way the families were treated in the public, um, it, to me, it doesn't make any sense that uh, what was the public interest in withholding this information? I can't. I think the public interest was in letting this information uh, go out in the first place, not withhold it. Sean Sparling with us, Chief Executive Officer, Investigative Solutions Network, talking about the Paul Bernardo transfer, the review out today. Uh, Sean, thanks for the time. Be well. Thank you, Ticker. The review committee concluded that the decisions to reclassify this inmate to medium security and transfer him to La Macaza Institution were sound and followed all applicable laws and policies. That is Ann Kelly, Commissioner of Correction Services, explaining uh, at a news conference earlier today uh, the reasons for the Paul Bernardo transfer and that they were sound. Let's bring in Joseph Newberger, criminal lawyer with Newberger Partners LLP, and here now. Joseph, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Oh, I'm doing well. Hope you are too. Uh, obviously, you know how the system works. You know the law. Uh, obviously, the the emotion that goes on with this case. What are your thoughts when you hear what we heard today? Well, it's repugnant, and I understand from the public standpoint why they'd feel this is particularly repugnant. He's one of the most notorious murderers in Canadian history, and he's had the benefit of being transferred to a lesser secure setting where he'll have more programs available, etc. So it's not how the public would view we treat such a horrific offender. So I understand it from, you know, sort of a legal standpoint and knowing, you know, sort of more about how they assess risk in uh, correctional facilities. The move itself may not be uh, so extreme, given that I'm sure Mr. Bernardo, while he's been in custody, has not caused a management issue and has been, for the most part, a model inmate. And you see that often with psychopathic offenders. Um, and so it's not uncommon for them to be very good uh, tenants in a, in a correctional facility. But this is very disturbing, and, and I understand why it's of such concern to the public. I don't think the public has uh, a concern with trying to rehabilitate, give a second chance to those, but what's the sense of having yeah. a dangerous offender status? Well, yeah, I mean, he's even been labeled a psychopath. Is this about rehab or, as you mentioned earlier, management uh, management of the prison community? Yeah. So let's look at it from this point, because I, I, I think there's I think there's a few aspects from this. One, um, management of prisoners is based upon risk. So a high risk offender inside a prison will have the more maximum secure setting. So there are offenders who are in jail settings and pose a significant risk to guards as well as to other inmates. And they will demand the highest risk level of security. People like Mr. Bernardo may very well not pose a high risk within the jail facility, but will pose a very significant risk if they were not in a structured setting. So this can be partially related to management uh, just simply of persons in custody. Also, the commissioner had indicated that our system is built on rehabilitation, and that is part of why he was moved. I don't necessarily buy that because in sentencing principles, we do take into consideration rehabilitation. But as you said, he's a dangerous offender with an extremely high risk uh, profile, including uh, psychopathy, which means he's not a candidate really for rehabilitation at all. So I don't see that as a meaningful aspect for his move. We heard at the very beginning of all of this when he was put away long ago that he was kept by himself primarily for his own safety. Has that changed? It seems so. I mean, you know, he may be in a setting 
in this Quebec facility. I'm not familiar with it, but he might be in a specialized unit where there are other sex offenders um, and of uh, you know more violent offenses where, given some more liberal movement, he would not be at personal risk. So that's possible. Um, but he certainly would be at risk uh, to be in a general population and any individual uh, with his you know, history would be. Um, so this must be some sort of specialized unit where he can get some more freedom and not be at risk. Uh, is he safer now? Is he himself personally safer? Yes. Um, you know, I, I'm sure he's not in a setting where, where he's at imminent risk. Uh, I think whenever he's exposed to more inmates in a population setting, there's always a risk that somebody might, um, you know, attack him or do something to him. So I think when you're uh, placed in a facility like that, his own personal risk will go up. Any recourse here uh, or, or him being switched back to maximum security? We all hear, well, you know, we can't let emotion get into this. And, um, and, and, you know, this is the way the system works. Politics can't be involved in that. And that all makes perfect sense. But as you said, this is Canada's most notorious killer. Um, if not for him, who? Um, is can, can anything be changed here? Anything be altered? So... This goes uh, with more scrutiny, comes with more scrutiny? Well, there's always the possibility, even though, uh, you know, corrections is an arm branch of the government. So w removing the politics, of course, there could be a review of that decision by the courts. Any administrative decision by a facility could be reviewed by a court uh, through an administrative process. So there's, you know, there's criminal law and then there's administrative law. So this would be an administrative um review and, and it could be challenged. My, my belief is that based upon the report that they're going to make available and probably more information about the internal record for Mr. Bernardo, that uh, any type of review through the court would not be successful. There can't be and there should not be anything done by the minister to override this decision because that would be purely political and we need to ensure that the politicians who are essentially the ministers stay out of the administration of justice and correctional services. So it seems right now that we're kind of stuck with this move, unfortunately. Joseph Newberger with us, criminal lawyer with Newberger and Partners LLP, talking about the Paul Bernardo prison transfer. Joseph, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. My pleasure. You too. Take care. Don't go away. We're coming right back. You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. You know, how ironic is it? I'm, I'm watching various screens here and um, a, a live hit of Toronto City Hall with the mayor there. And they've just uh, declared uh, intimate partner violence and gender-based violence an epidemic, an emergency, a crisis. How ironic all of that is happening the same day that we hear a report from Correction Services Commissioner Ann Kelly and how their decision was sound to transfer Paul Bernardo from a maximum security prison to a medium security prison to better manage the situation, uh, obviously giving him uh, more privileges. He's not getting out, but, um, you know, again, uh, how odd is it that on the day that cities are declaring gender-based violence and intimate per, uh, partner violence, uh, an epidemic, a crisis uh, that <laughs> in one door, out the other, I guess. I don't know. It just seems very ironic. 
Uh, let's bring in Henry Jasek, professor of political science at McMaster University. We're going to talk about all kinds of things, political, provincial, federal, what have you. Henry Jasek with us now. Henry, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. I'm doing well. Thank you. Let's talk about this uh, first, uh, Henry, because it's top of mind, the news conference today from Correction Services. Your thoughts on, uh, obviously, their decision, they say, is sound for the transfer of Bernardo from a maximum to a medium security prison. But how do you think politically this is going to affect the government of the day? Well, it's going to hurt the government. And there's a big problem with, with the whole that whole ministry is that they essentially believe they, you know, they don't have to keep the public informed when they make this, uh, important decisions like this. And they also have made a decision to uh, not tell the minister about these sort of things uh, or, the, or the prime minister. And the minister, prime minister and the minister seem, up until this uh, whole flare-up, seem to be okay with that. So I, there's just, you know, you just need a, a cleaning of house, in, uh, you know, and, and policies and people in that ministry. And listen, they, they have to recognize when you have, you know, somebody who's done such terrible things, the public knows about it, they, they essentially want to, you know, be sure that this person never gets out of jail, never, there's no chance of uh, anything like that, and that, uh, you know, he's not being given an easy ride. And, 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 and even the people who formerly held the important offices in that ministry uh, have, you know, come on TV and said, well, you know, we have a problem in communications. And, I mean, I think that's an understatement. Uh, well documented in this uh, in news conference today, uh, Ann Kelly saying that uh, definitely both offices, the prime minister and the safety minister, knew, uh, but for some reason the staff or it didn't get to, you don't want to blame the staff, you don't know what the story is there, but clearly uh, it's nobody's telling the boss or the boss is blaming it on the staff, what have you, then said that now what she will do is personally speak to each and every one of them. I mean, um, if you don't do this for a uh, an offender like Bernardo, who, who do you do it for, and is, is this good enough? No, not good enough at all. I mean, first of all, I, you know, I think the staff, uh, over time, when you have a government that's in, in, in uh, you know, in, you know, in office for quite a while, and this government has been, is they start recognizing that there are certain things they can get away with, and they know that that the, the minister or the prime minister is not going to be unhappy with what they do, and what they want want try to do is avoid telling uh, the minister about controversial news or negative news, uh, and then so the and their fallback is well they can. When, when this all blows up, the minister or the prime minister can say, I didn't know anything about it, and then the story will go away. Now, the mis- miscalculation here, this story is not going away. This, is, this was such an outrageous uh, thing that happened uh, with, with regard to this uh, individual. Uh, it, it's just never, it's not going to go away. It's, he'll be long gone in a pine box, and there'll still be people who will still be upset about it. And so uh- they, they need to... They need to Char say, listen, when we're mo- when we're dealing with one of these cases, when we're taking somebody from a maximum security prison and going to a lesser one, you need to get have the minister needs to put his signature on a document saying you I've been told about this and I approve it. And if the press wants to know why I have approved it, uh, I'll tell them. 
uh, that takes us to our next issue, that being a cabinet shuffle. Uh, right. Boy, is it, is it a shuffle or a complete uh, blow-up and restart again? Um, rumor has it that's going to happen before the August uh, long weekend. Safe to say Mendoncito won't be a part of it? Won't well, be a part of the cabinet anyway. Yeah, I, I, I really think there's a number of reasons why he should go. Uh, you know, he, he's not very convincing when he explains things. Uh, you know, uh, I, I just think there are better people in the in, and there's no question that there's better people in in the caucus. I mean, for example, the, the, although he's running for uh, the uh, provincial government uh, to be a leadership, Yasser Nakvi is a former attorney general of Ontario. And everybody agreed that I've ever talked to, and as far as I could tell, thought he was a very good, you know, attorney general. So they need to, they have to, you know, you, you, they essentially have to make sure they put, I mean, the prime minister has to have somebody in that office, because that's, that's a very important office. And, uh, you know, and that, we, I've seen that in the past, even under his father, where some people who were appointed to, to you know, that office uh, we're not we're really not people who are, you know, good communicators or willing to explain things to the public. And it, it got the father in trouble and uh, it's getting the son in trouble too. this whole attitude. What kind of shuffle do you think is going to happen here? Is this going to be a major deal? Is it just the, the hot spots that are going to be scorched or, 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 or changed? What kind of shuffle do you think we're looking at here? Well, it depends. I mean, the prime, the prime minister is going to, first of all, is going to go to each one and saying, okay, if I keep you as a minister, are you going to run in the next election? And I want you to sign on the dotted line that you're going to do that. Okay? And if you're not going to run in the next election, I'm going to replace, give, put somebody else in. That's, that's, that's the first thing that's going to happen. And I don't know how many people are going to say to him, oh, well, I enjoyed being a minister, but I'm, I'm not, I'm not going to run in the next election. So we, we don't know how many people will say that. Uh, and, of course, since it's going to be uh, really sort of a 10-year anniversary, uh, a lot of people are going to say, well, maybe this is the time when the government's you know, going to lose the election, and I, might, it's, I probably should get out now and, and look for a new mm. job before, uh, rather than being a herd of people two years from now who are going to be running around looking for a job. So that that's one of the things, that's a big thing that, that he's going to do first of all. So I don't know how many people are going to do that, but, you know, I think there'll be some surprises there possibly. But, uh, but uh, you know, it's, uh, you know, it depends on whether people think he's going to win again or not, and they're going to be part of it. And so uh, we'll, have, we'll have to see on that one. But I'm not 100% sure, you know, how many are going to go. What about uh, key players like Christia Freeland, Anita Anon? Because uh, they're pretty strong individuals as well. Do you see them being a part of this more? Well, I think I think she has a good reputation among the public, from what I can tell, and I think she has a very good staff, from what I can tell, from what people tell me, and what and and uh, she has a there's and you know as as she should you know as if she get, has a lot of uh, people in other countries who who come on you know who talk mm-hmm. about her as being a very good minister. And I've heard that on American television on some of them, and I'm quite surprised when they when they say a certain Canadian minister is really doing a great job. So, if you know, I think he's going to keep her there because she she has that type of reputation and seems to be doing well. Henry, let me ask you this: um, I read this somewhere, uh, and this is very much a distinct possibility. If after another election. Uh, there's another minority government, and say Pierre Polyevra is in charge of that. Uh, why wouldn't the NDP and the Liberals just get back together like they are now and team up and form their own uh, coalition again? 
Well, one problem I, I just saw one the, the most recent public opinion poll that I saw shows that even that the uh, that the conservatives have gone up a bit, and uh, uh, I don't know support maybe for the uh, for the block, and that there won't be a majority of seats even if you put the uh, liberals and the NDP together. So mm. they. I mean, they could try that, but they, you know, it's not won't be as cozy as it is now because the the, the NDP and the Liberals form a majority. But without, but if they can't, then boy, things get very, you know, very confusing, and all sorts of things could happen. Is there a good time for Jugmeet Singh and the NDP to break away here, or has the damage been done? Are they both labeled with the same, painted with the same brush? Well, I think they together they have. Um, uh, you know they 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 are not really doing all that well together to to form a majority. It's pretty clear. We saw that in some by elections that we had. If we saw the NDP didn't do do well all in that by election, uh, so you know that they they're going to may possibly will lose a few seats if that happens. Although it, it may not. Uh, but uh, yeah, so it's a, you're not. It's simply, it, there's no good time for uh, you know for uh, Jagmeet Singh to call you know to, to pull the plug. He's got to you know he's got to hope that things are going to get better, and I think the prime minister's going to hope things get better. And of course, what the prime minister will have is lots of money, and we know, and he and his and his people and his liberals know how to spend it in the campaign. So that's what he's got to hope. But I mean, you may hit a point sometimes when even if you've got a lot of money and all the greatest ads in the world, you're you're not going to hold on. So, but uh, yeah, Jagmeet Singh is in you know somewhat of a weak position right now, and uh, I don't know how you know he's he's just got to hang on so he doesn't lose his job. I think that's the important thing. Uh, let's talk about provincial politics um, and, and our premier, who um, it, it's interesting to see him evolve over time, mm. uh, much like a bull in a china shop at one point. Uh, now, of course, uh, can do deals with, with the prime minister. Uh, there was chat before the Toronto mayoral, mayoral election. Uh, Doug Ford said it would be a disaster if Olivia Chow got in. Olivia Chow got in. The first day said she's going to sue the the provincial government over Ontario place. And then all of a sudden, boom, they all come together and it's cozy and they, they help the refugee situation in Toronto and team up to, uh, to uh, hit up the feds for more money. Uh, are you surprised here by how this is spun around? Yeah, it, 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 it was very quick, uh, but I guess, at the, you know, I'm really you know, not all that surprised. We saw some of the same thing in Hamilton uh, with the, uh, with the former leader of the NDP provincially, who very yep. quickly said, "Hey," uh, t- was telling uh, the newly elected sort of more, to, more, uh, progr- you know, uh, stronger uh, left-wing uh, members who were elected, telling them, "Hey, we shouldn't be, you know, throwing uh, sand in the eyes of the, uh, or whatever language she used, uh, she used in the eyes of the premier. We got to work with this guy, so we have to be reasonable." And uh, and you're seeing the same thing from, you know, uh, another. <laughs> Another great, uh, important uh, new Democrat uh, who is now mayor of Toronto, who's followed going down the same road, and both both in both cases, uh, I think the the, the uh, I'm sure I'd give a lot of credit to the premier. Probably quietly, you know, he's pointed out to them, and they could see it. Listen, the federal government's got a lot of money. Uh, we can make a case that a lot of these things that he should be giving money for are federal responsibilities, like refugees and things like that. Uh, and, and 
and and together they've they've all seen the light is okay let's let's gang up on on the prime minister while where he is you know in somewhat uh, da- somewhat danger of losing the next election and also the survey that I last uh, last saw showed that uh, he was not he was only he was just treading water in the city of Toronto that he's you know maybe at 50-50 where normally he needs a big uh, to win a lot of seats in order to be uh, to, to well certainly to get to get a majority and even a minority he's got to win you know a good number of seats he can he can't just be breaking even with the uh, with the conservatives are times changing are, are are we learning to love one another more and more politically after a, a pandemic how do you explain this well a, a lot of these things deal with money and uh, if two people see that they can take get money from a third person they're mm. likely to say hey let's join in this together and, and see what we can get I mean, that, that happens a lot in the business world. It happens a lot in the political world. And I think that's what you're seeing, and particularly from these you know, former uh, NDP politicians who now find themselves as mayors. And, and the mayors in, the, you know, in, in, this, in, in uh, Ontario, they, they have a lot of problems. I mean, they, we, you know, the, we, there's a lot of things that need to be done at the municipal level. And, and, the, and the city councils and the mayors are fe- feeling a lot of fire. And they know they got to do something, and they have to be very pragmatic. And uh, joining together with the premier to demand that uh, the federal government pony up with more money is something they can all agree. Those two can agree on. It's interesting you talk about the municipal uh, at the municipal level. I was doing some research yesterday, and I stumbled upon a Toronto Star article from 2009, February no February of 2006, where Dalton McGuinty was suggesting that the Toronto mayor needed more power to break the gridlock. How ironic is all of that? Yeah, I, I didn't know about that, but that yeah. it is interesting. Uh, if you go back in time, you do find a lot of these things that are. <laughs> You know, unusual and a bit shocking. <laughs> Henry Jasek with us, professor of political science, McMaster University. Henry, always fun. Thanks for the time. Be well. Okay, very good. Nice talking to you again. When there's an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Well, we remember it wasn't that long ago that uh, it was announced that the B.C. port strike uh, had, well, at least reached a tentative agreement and that uh, people were going back to their collective sides. And, and although it was odd because when this was announced, many stressed this was only tentative. Uh, which normally, if they get to that point, they're they're pretty much over the finish line. However, obviously not the case this time. And uh, announced the other day that uh, the tentative deal had not been uh, reached. There was no vote even. Uh, so it was odd. It seems the same people that uh, accepted the tentative agreement then didn't even put it to a vote and decided later that this uh, wasn't sufficient and the strike would be on again. Now, uh, it appears that the strike, which was set for Saturday, that has been postponed. Negotiations continuing. Let's get an update from Kyle Benning, network digital broadcast journalist for Global News and here now. Kyle, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Doing well, Scott. Hope you are as well. So, Kyle, do we know what happened here? Because, again, it looked like there was a tentative deal. It didn't even go for a vote. So it appears the same people that kind of accepted the tentative deal then said no to the tentative deal. Do we know what happened? Yeah, still trying to figure out uh, exactly what happened here. But you kind of laid it out very well in your intro, Scott. There's been a lot of movement just within the last 48 hours. And it uh, after speaking to people sort of around this and, and labor lawyers and business groups, it makes the union look a little bit unorganized and it doesn't really quite bode well for them if uh, if there has to be something in that mediated deal that they must have liked in order to agree to it and, and sort of end the strike last week. 
I'm not quite sure what happened on the inside. Obviously, you mentioned there it didn't even go to a vote for members. So members didn't even get a chance to vote on this and, and say whether they liked it or not. But clearly, there was something in the fine print when it came to job security, when it came to automation, when it came to contracting out that the leadership of the union did not like, which is why we ended up uh, seeing a picket on Tuesday and then a cease and desist to end that picket on Wednesday and, and uh, an issuing of a 72-hour strike notice, which was then rescinded. It sounds like uh, all of the players are at the table, though. It sounds like uh, the federal government is speaking to both sides on this. It sounds like uh, Justin Trudeau has organized his his cabinet and his core members to try and prevent another strike from taking place. And it looks like everyone is looking for something to come to a resolution sooner rather than later. And I think part of that is what we're seeing with the, the rescinding of the strike notice that maybe the union is coming back to the table and some discussions are still going to take place. One thing I will add on top of this, Scott, is that workers are back on ports and and things are starting to happen in their workplace. So mm-hmm. it's, it's, I would say it's looking a lot more positive than negative right now. Uh, so uh, is negotiation going on? Is the mediator still involved with this? Because I understand this was a mediated deal that uh, that was then pushed forward. And if there's a mediator involved, what happens when his deal is not accepted? Right. No, it's a, it's a good question. And the thing is, the, it sounds like the mediator isn't, uh, there, there is no talk sort of going on. It sounds like the union is simply considering again the deal that was that came forward through the mediator. Uh, it doesn't sound like either sides have met, but it sounds like the union is reconsidering its path on on how it's going to go forward with this. It's I I would expect that both sides to meet and and whether that means changes to the current agreement to take place, but nothing has has been quite signed yet, and we're going to have to to wait and see whether uh, further developments take place tomorrow or even over the weekend. Obviously, those involved want to get to the bottom of this through uh, through negotiation and such. Uh, that being said, if that doesn't happen, how long do you think before the government's ready to pull the plug on this? I don't think they're going to give the union too, too much time here. I think uh, given they, they believe they had a deal after 13 days of a strike, and obviously here we have huge economic impacts here. I mean, half uh, $500 million every day uh, at ports being held up if, if when the strike was going on and the Greater Vancouver Board of Trade said about 10 million of goods was just held through the 13-day strike. So I don't think they're going to give them a lot of wiggle room here. Uh, I spoke to a labor lawyer. One thing he said is, hey, maybe the union doesn't care about public opinion or the, the, court, <laughs> the court of the public uh, sort of feeling. They might say, hey, these companies have raised their rates so much coming out of COVID and have earned such high profits that they the workers want to see a part of that. They don't care about whether they're holding out on a strike. The backside of that is, is you have to deal with the federal government. And if this goes on too long, how long it'll take for them to get involved. Another sort of quirk of the, this whole story here as well is obviously the liberals have to deal with the NDP. And who knows how the NDP would react if back-to-work legislation was on the table for the liberals. It'll be interesting to see what the difference is between the deal that we thought was tentative in a go and the one that they eventually come up with. It'll be inter- interesting to see if the difference, what the difference is between those. But I guess highly unlikely that we're going to get any of these details if we're not getting them now. Yeah, I, I would be shocked if we got too, too many of the details. Also, Scott, we might just end up with the exact same deal that we got last week. So yeah. nothing might change. Something might change. Uh, whether that's better or worse for the company or the union, we'll, we'll have to wait and see. But I'm sure we'll we'll hear about it as uh, as the days go on and as uh, we hear more about uh, meetings taking place and when a, a contract is finalized and whether a ratification vote takes place.
Kyle Benning with us, network digital broadcast journalist with Global News, talking about the B.C. port strike, uh, which is now theoretically back on, looking for a new deal. And uh, obviously things are moving, but uh, a tenuous situation still at this point. Kyle, thanks so much for the time. Good luck. Be well. Always a pleasure, Scott. We've talked at length on this show in regard to the high cost of living, the shortage of housing, the lack of building, and how we got to where we are. Um, many people, how, how often have you heard from, I'm going into Brunswick. I'm moving to, I'm moving to the coast. I'm moving. Yeah. There seems lots of people that are uh, saying I've had enough of this. I'm getting out. Uh, but many are getting right out of the country entirely. Some of those immigrants that have come in and said, no, this ain't for us and going somewhere else. Uh, to talk more about this, Sir Somerville is with us, Real Estate Foundation of British Columbia, professor in Real Estate Finance and Association, Strategy, Business, Economic Division of University uh, at University of British Columbia, and here now. Sir, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I'm doing well. You got through all those titles. That's very impressive. It, it is difficult, especially towards the end of the show. Anyway, <laughs> uh, so, sir, uh, uh, are, is this uncommon to hear this? Is this the first time you've heard that, wow, people are, and is this people coming in and decide, no, nah, Canada's not for them, we're going to go someplace else, or Canadians just saying, I've had enough of this, I'm going somewhere else? So it's relatively new in the sense that I think I think first heard about it from someone else in the media one to two months ago. Um, and, you know, my, my first reaction to it is, you know, most people don't have the ability to go work legally in some other country just at the drop of a hat. Yeah. So, that you know, if you're thinking about who might do this, it has to be someone who is either sort of retired and they're going to go live six months, you know, essentially going to be a, instead of a snowbird, a cheap housing bird, right? Um, and then sort of rent in, in, in Canada for the time that they're in Canada and then live somewhere else. So that's kind of one possibility. Or it's somebody who has a, a work permit in another, in another place and has the ability to work there either because they're immigrating there or because that's where they, they come from. And that all of a sudden becomes a very a much smaller subset of, of, of the people. You know, you get these unusual situations where people do immigrate to, to Canada um, they find that getting a job here in their profession is really, really difficult because of all the obstruction from uh, provincial uh, industry groups. You know, so you're an architect in India, you come here and all of a sudden they're like, no, you know what? You know, angles and load factors are different in India. You can't be an architect here. And then all of a sudden you can't afford the lifestyle you want to have here. And then you think about going somewhere else. But I think that's more a, a, not, a not getting the, the job in your profession issue than a housing cost per se. So is this Canadians who have been here and want to try something else or those that are looking for a new place, a new home? Well, you, you, you do hear the, situa- the, the stories about people who have remote work and then going and living someplace else, yeah. not as citizens uh, and not, at, not having a work permit there because they're not working there. They're actually working at home, but, but distance. So you hear about like Americans going to Portugal because it's you know, cheaper in Portugal and a nice lifestyle. But again, then again, that's somebody whose re- remote work lets them do that. Um, and they're probably got the ability to handle the health insurance issue because that's always a sticking point. The other mm-hmm. thing is, is it's, it's not like they're, they're cheap places in industrialized economies around the world. You know, most places in the States are expensive now. Europe's expensive. East Asia's expensive. Uh, and so then all of a sudden you're talking and going, talking about going to a country that's not another, um, you know, advanced industrial economy, that's already kind of a different story anyhow. And it was always yeah. cheaper and always will be cheaper. 
Is Canada as attractive as a destination as it always has been? Is it still the best? <laughs> well, best is all in the eye of the beholder, right? If you don't, yes. if you don't play hockey and you know, can't ice skate, it's not quite as appealing as as, as some other places. Um, I, I think our bigger issue, I mean, housing costs are, of course, a problem here. I think a much bigger issue is the path to employment and people's chosen profession. I think that's a much bigger issue with immigrants who come here and get frustrated. It's not the high housing costs that's frustrating them per se. It's more on the employment side. And I, you know, it's just the stories you hear about, about people who are told uh, when they're in their country of origin by, you know, counselor officials that, yes, you'll be able to be an engineer, be a doctor, what, you know, all these things where we need those people. And they come here and all of a sudden, you know, the, you know, Ontario Royal College of Surgeons is like, nope, we don't recognize your qualifications. And then the certification process is, it takes, you know, years and years and years. And that's very frustrating to people who've already trained. What about province to province? I, I, you know, anecdotally, I can't think of, you know, I, uh, I've got at least a handful of people I've, I've talked to who said, oh, I'm thinking about going out east. Have you been out there? Have you visited New Brunswick? Do you know where you're going? And, and really haven't done <laughs> much research. Yeah, they really haven't done much research and, at all, but they think there's a better place to go. What about province to province? Oh, that's always been a much bigger story. Uh, in the sense that, you know, we have a lot of uh, interprovincial migration. You know, typically it's about employment. You know, there's this basically, you know, uh, think of a triangle between B.C., Ontario and Alberta and wherever the economy is doing the best gets sort of this big uh, flow of, of people. Uh, B.C. often has an outflow of, of people because of our high housing costs, mainly going to Alberta because of lower housing costs and, and better employment prospects. So, you know, that's certainly something that's been around. And I and I think to the same extent that people have looked at moving from larger cities to smaller cities that are a little less expensive, and the ability to do re remote work has accelerated that, you know, at the provincial level, that's completely juiced because you're not dealing with any of the uh, work permits, you're not dealing with the same kind of uh, health insurance issues, because you can get health insurance in, in other provinces. So that's something where I would certainly have expected it to, to ramp, you know, to have, you know, interprovincial housing refugees. Uh, any tips for people who are thinking of doing this, what they should do, what they should keep in mind, uh, looking to the future? Uh, it's not just a case of where you can find a cheaper house or even a job. Now, stock up on your local beer because because of the, uh, <laughs> the provincial trade areas, you can't always get that good local beer where you're moving to. Uh, I don't know. Can you, I think Kokanee's available right the way across the country now, is it not? Yeah, there are a couple, but there's some beers in Ontario. <laughs> that, you know, my, uh, there's a beer out of Ottawa my wife really wants to try, and we can't get it here. So, yeah. so is this a big issue, or is this just something that always happens when uh, people are having a tough time with the economy? So I think I, I would add that I think that housing costs have now become a bigger part of the opportunity wage equation when people are considering where they move to. That wasn't necessarily the case, you know, maybe 20 years ago. Yeah, OK, Vancouver's expensive, but we don't think about it other places now because there's so many other cities that are also expensive. I, I my sense is, is that it is more of a factor now in terms of so that, that equation. Where do we move and, and do we move? now in includes the housing prices at where you're leaving and where you might be going in ways that have a greater weight than it might have 10, 20 years ago. How is it different now in a post-pandemic world? How has that changed our culture, our thinking? 
Well, you know, the, the economists who have looked at this, have really, you know, what they really focus on is the effect of the post-pandemic world on where people work relative to where they live. And for many people, the disconnect between, um, you know, being able to work remotely and not have to go into an office uh, and then that freeing them up. You know, there is a risk here that, that, you know, a lot of employers want people in their seats. And so there's a little bit of a back and forth tug there. Uh, the strong labor markets, I think, have, have made it so that, that people's unwillingness to go you know, back to the office uh, the way it was before, not everybody, but, you know, many people is, is allowing hybrid work or remote work to continue where that if we ever have, a, you know, the near future, a chunk of, uh, of unemployment that might turn around and you don't want to have relocated uh, to New Brunswick and doing your remote job in Mississauga and all of a sudden to have the boss say, nope, everybody back to work now. Mm. Sir Somerville with us, Real Estate Foundation of BC, professor in real estate finance and associate professor of strategy, business, economics division, University of British Columbia. Thank you so much. Be well. Oh, it's a pleasure. And uh, stay dry. We'll try. Port Dover South Coat Jazz Festival hitting its 10th anniversary and expanding into Brantford this year. And to talk more about this, folk, uh, folk artist Carla Mueller is with us now. Carla, uh, Carla, thanks for the time. Hope you're well. Hi, I'm good. Thanks. How about you? Uh, so far, so good. Is this uh, how many years have you been f- performing at the South Coast Jazz Festival? This is my second year at the festival. And to those who have never been, describe it for us. What's it like? Oh, it's amazing. It's just such a such such a great show. The level of talent that I see there um, makes me feel a little out of my depth, to be honest. But uh, but it's it's uh, it's just this wonderful atmosphere to be in and the audience gets into it and and it's um it's just a lot of fun talk about now expanding into Brantford obviously a good sign this is expanding <laughs> expanding into Brantford is pretty exciting we're at, we're at the uh, Brantford Sanderson Center and uh this is a featured recorded event um which is kind of cool and uh we've got Mark Holmes of Platinum Blonde uh, Charo Suri, Mark Kelso and the Jazz Exiles. And I'll actually be singing a little later with Mark, uh, one of my original songs and a couple of other ones. We've got Dave Griffin, Tom Adkins and the Ryers Jazz Singers. And of course, Julianne Kachaki. What's it been like for you, Carla? Uh, obviously, pandemic now getting back into things. You're seeing things come back around. That has to be encouraging. Oh, it's it's like being able to breathe again. It's such a relief. And um you know, it's uh, it's been a hard couple of years, but this last year has been, you know, just coming out of it. It's like everyone's just sort of lifting their heads up and going, oh, we're back to it again. And um, and but I think with a greater appreciation than before. Are you sensing that from the audience that they're happy to be there? Oh, absolutely. Last year, yeah. it was just there was such a sense of of elation among the people to be at a live show and live music is, is such a special thing to be a part of. Um, and, uh, and it's just, you, you could really sense the sense of excitement in the audience. And, uh, and so we're really looking forward to that this year. What's it like playing in Port Dover? Everybody knows how beautiful that is. Talk about the setting. Well, actually Port Dover is beautiful, beautiful. And, uh, but I haven't sung in Port Dover. We were in, uh, we were in Simcoe last year. Oh yeah. At the arena and um, another beautiful, uh, beautiful town to be in. 
But uh, but I went to Port Dover just to look around a little, do a little walking around. And it's such a quaint, such a quaint village and such a spectacular setting. So it's really nice to um, really nice place to take a couple of days and enjoy some live music and then come over to Brantford. And, uh, you know, so Friday we're in uh, uh, Friday night, we're in Port Dover and then Saturday in Brantford and then Sunday, August 13th. We are at the Brantford Harmony Square. What is it like in Ontario's uh, uh, folk festival circuit? What is this like? Is it is it growing? Is it thriving? Give us, a, especially in a post-pandemic world. Well, do you know something? It's um, because I'm myself, I'm, I'm one of these immunocompromised people. I haven't been out in it. And right. uh, and last year at the, uh, at the South Coast Jazz Festival in Simcoe, was my first time out in it. I actually just came to this really because of the pandemic. I kind of looked up and went, if I'm not going to do this, then when? And I mm. thought, you know, it's time to follow some dreams and start living. So um, how was that influenced? How was that? In- some amazing people. <laughs> how has that influenced your writing? Um, it's, oh my gosh, exponentially. So, <laughs> so when I started, I probably had about 300, songs in the can we've gone through about oh 55 of them here at uh, canterbury music company where i'm recording all of these and uh and i i think now i probably am closer to 600 it, it, it's been great for the creative process and the future what are you looking forward to looking forward to hitting some of the folk music circuit and uh, and getting my feet wet there and um you know really looking forward to um Really looking forward to South Coast Jazz this year. And then just branching out a little bit, meeting some more people and seeing some of my albums come out. You know, our Christmas album comes out this year, um, just in time for Christmas. And that snow came falling. And then early next year is going to be the in-between album. And then I've got, I think, about four more coming after that in close succession. All right. She's uh, stocked up and ready to go. Carla Muller with this folk artist from Woolwich, Ontario, performing at the South Coast Jazz Festival, 10th anniversary edition, southcoastjazz.com to find out more. Carla, thanks for the time. Good luck. Thank you so much. Have a great day. You too. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the last word. And this one coming from Benita in regard to the Paul Bernardo prison transfer. Scott, it makes you wonder about people in charge of making these decisions. The poor families of the girls tortured and murdered. What about the other women that he went after in the 80s as well? He's he's a horrific, sadistic killer. Maybe someone in this prison will go after him. It wouldn't be the first time. Uh, That's signed Benita. Keep right except to pass. Nighty night.